Um, we do teach out of the American Standard. If you want to follow along with that, if you have an NIV or something else, please feel free to raise your hand and one of the guys yeah, will we'll bring you one. So um, we have a lot of ground to cover tonight, and so I'm not really going to go into a, a big review over the last four chapters of what we've been doing. I usually do that, but um, we're only halfway through chapter four, and tonight, we're gonna, God willing, we're going to try to get all the way through chapter six. So I do want to jump right in, and I want to clear up a few things in chapter four before we jump on into chapter five. And um, so opening, be opening your Bibles to Genesis chapter four. Will I swallow my gum? forgot it was there for a minute. Genesis chapter 4, if you recall, we left off last week in verse 16. And in verse 16 of chapter 4, we find that Cain had went out from the presence of the Lord, and he settles in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And what's interesting about all of that is we see right here as we begin verse 17, is that we're going to find the generations of Cain. We're going we're gonna to see a list, and we're going to do something, like I said, a little bit different in that. Usually I'll read a, a section, a chunk of Scripture, and then I'll come back and I'll explain it. But tonight, because of all the uh, Scripture that we want to cover, we're going, I'm going to just explain it as I read it. And for some of you, you'll be like, no, stay right there. Let's talk about that a little bit more. And some of you will be going, no, let's keep moving past that part. It's going to be a little bit different, and, you know, it's, it's kind of what the Spirit does to you. Sometimes you're reading and you think, I've never seen this before. And then all of a sudden, God pricks your heart and says, no, this is what you need to talk about. So we'll just see what happens. Let's go ahead and read together in verse 17, Genesis chapter 4. I have it here on my computer. It says, Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of that city of the city Enoch after the name of his son. First of all, right here, we're seeing the beginning of the, the, the key stages in the building of civilization. In verse 18, it says, Now to Enoch was born Irad, and Irad became the father of Mehujael, and Mehujael became the father of Methushael, and Methushael became the father of Lamech, and Lamech took to himself two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. Ada gave birth to Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. Right here, we see just the next stage, a key aspect in the development of civilization. The breeding and the caring of animals are developed. This brother, uh, this son, Jabal, he's the founder of that. In verse 21, we find another key aspect. His, brother, his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre. And pipe, and it's interesting right here that we find the origins of music among the basic stages in the development of civilization. And there are many people who don't believe that verse really fits in there. Like, why is that verse in there? Because think about it: is music crucial to our survival? Like, do we need it to live? Like, who really needs it to live except Doug? Okay, <laughs> sorry, Doug. Technically, we don't really need it. It's not has no innate or built-in value for survival. But I believe music is foundational to humans. And I actually believe music is a gift from God. We're going to be worshiping God in heaven. We're going to be in praise and in song together as we worship the Lord God. So I believe it is a gift from God. But can you imagine a world without it? Because it is true. We don't need it to survive. 
but I can't imagine a world without music. And so I love these quotes from uh, pro-evolutionist writers. I put them up here on the screen. One guy, his name is Brian uh, Riesnick, he wrote this, from an evolutionary perspective, it makes no sense whatsoever that music makes us feel emotions. And then the, fa the fa father of evolution, Charles Darwin, he wrote this, man's faculties for enjoying and producing music must be ranked among the most mysterious with which he is endowed. Well, hello, we're endowed with our creator. And so I believe music is very special in the building of our civilization. In verse 22, reads this. Why do I keep doing this? I have it on my computer. As for Zilla, she also gave birth to Tubal-Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. Here is the final stage of the development of of their artistic and their technical development of this civilization. And from a human point of view, from outside looking in, we look at this and we go, man, you know, Cain's descendants really had it together. They're an admirable group right here. This guy Jabal, he developed the science of agriculture. And Jubal, he founded the culture of music. And then Tubal Cain, it says, he basically founded the metal industries. He was able to, it, metallurgy, he was able to fashion tools and, and uh, edged uh, edge blades and who knows all the other tools and different things. In fact, later on, when the Jews are being attacked, uh, when the Israelites are being attacked, they're being attacked by metal chariots. This, this development, this cultural development didn't come to the Jews for many, many years later, but we see the development of civilization early on. We take it for granted and we think, well, civilization has always been around, but right here it's the first sign that we ever see of civilization um, being developed. So the outward appearances of Cain and this city, you go, man, a great success. They were intelligent. They, they, they were smart. They were inventive. They were all of these things, but God made it clear that he, I reject the whole thing, he says. And because, because of all that, I believe, they would cause them to wander away from their one true God. Whereas the Sethites... They were drawing near to God, and we're going to read that in just a moment. They, they, they were drawing near to a true worship of God. So civilization, civilization today, let me just ask you a question. Do you think we're more a Canite civilization or a Sethite civilization? We're Canite. In many ways, we resemble the things of the, of the city of Enoch, this Canite civilization. We have elements of agriculture, elements of industry, elements of art and music, and we have great cities, but unfortunately, many, many people are wandering away from the true worship of God, and so we have to be careful. We can't be drawn to every shiny new technological thing that comes along. It's fine if it doesn't draw you away from the Lord, and we saw that with them, so we have to be careful. In verse 23, it says, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me, and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech, 77-fold. Right here, Lamech, this, this, this guy, he, he's a, kind of a bragger. This man right here, he, he's bragging about committing this revenge, or some, some commentaries say that this, these wordings are future tense, that he hasn't actually killed somebody yet, but he's bragging that I will. Either way, He's, he's bragging about this revenge and he's glorifying 
a love for violence. He's putting all peoples on alert. He says, look, if you wound me, if you even bruise me, not only am I going to kill you, but 77 of your people. He does this in, as a way of retaliation. And again, these people were educated. This civilization, they were creative and inventive, but understand morality and civilization, they don't always go hand in hand. They, you just don't naturally assume that they'll be together. A modern example is Germany in World War II. Arguably, you could argue that, that Germany was one of the most well-educated societies in all the world at that time, and yet they brought about World War II upon the world and the Holocaust. So we see morality and civilization don't always go hand in hand. And it's interesting that this unbalance, if you will, unbalanced retribution was normal in all societies of that time. You even see some of that today, where if you kill one of our guys, we're going to kill 15 of yours. We're just going to bomb the whole city. We still see traces of that today, but I think that's why God stepped in and gave us the law. In Leviticus 24, 19, it says, If a man injures his neighbor, just as he has done, so shall it be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Just as it injured, pardon me, just as he in, has injured a man, so it shall be inflicted on him. The law was designed to restrict unbalanced retribution, and, and it's limited to this one-on-one -on -one approach. And it, it, in other words, I guess, the way we would word it today is the crime needs to fit the punishment, right? Or the punishment cannot be more than the crime. And so God gave us the law. And I think it's a very, very good thing. In verse 25, it goes on and it talks about Adam and relations with his wife. Let's read it in verse 25. Adam had relations with his wife again. And she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth, to him, also a son was born. And he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Right here we see the first descendant people to ever have a relationship with the one true God, with God Almighty, the creator of the universe. And it says that they began to call upon the name of the Lord right here. So understand this, that this belief that uh, worshiping one true God was a Jewish culture thing, it's called monotheism. It wasn't. The Jews, they modified it. They adopted it, I should say, that came down through Abraham, but Abraham wasn't even born at this time. This happened several generations earlier that people would call on the name of the Lord and worship the one true God, monotheism. The Jewish tradition of monotheism, they had that, but they had what they called ethical monotheism, which means they basically, they added the laws of God, specifically the Ten Commandments, the Torah, and the Hebrew Bible. So very interesting as we jump into chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them. And he named them man in the day when they were created. Well, right here, the male and female distinction is the only built-in human distinction that matters. Race doesn't matter. 
nationality doesn't matter, uh, ethnicity doesn't matter. None of those things matter. The only distinction right here is that is mentioned is sex distinction. That's what it says. I'm not making it up, but that's exactly what the word says. So any attempt to undo this division fundamentally tampers with the divine order of God's perfect word. And so we have to be very careful because some people would say, well, brother, I think you're reading more into it than you ought to right there. Uh, Yet really? Then why is it that the rest of Scripture really conveys God's heart? We, We see it, God's own heart in Deuteronomy 22. It's like God was trying to warn us, to, to prepare us, knowing this, this may be coming down the pike here. So be prepared. A woman shall not wear man's clothing, nor shall a man put on a woman's, woman's clothing. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. So listen, verse by verse teaching does not allow me to skirt around verses like this, nor should we. God wants us to have the full counsel of His Word. And so we teach verse by verse, and sometimes you hit these verses, and it's what it says. And so we have to stand by that. Now, next we're going to read a good chunk of this uh, chapter because it deals with a lot of genealogies. And we're going to begin in verse 3, so stay along with me. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Then the days of Adam, after he became the father of Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Seth lived 105 years and became the father of Enosh. Then Seth lived 807 years after he became the father of Enosh. And he had other sons and daughters, so all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Enosh lived 90 years and became the father of Kenan. Then Enosh lived 800 years and 15 years after he became the father of Kenan, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Kenan lived 70 years and became the father of Mahalalel. Then Kenan lived 840 years after he became the father of Mahalalel, and he had other sons and daughters, so all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. Mahalalel lived 65 years and became the father of Jared. Then Mahalalel lived 830 years after he became the father of Jared, and he had other sons and daughters, so all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. Jared lived 162 years and became the father of Enoch. Then Jared lived 800 years and became the father of Enoch. Pardon me. Jared lived 800 years after he became the father of Enoch, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God. 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, for he was, and he was not, for God took him. Well, first off, let me just, just help us all to understand that Adam and Eve had other children that aren't listed here. There's other 
genealogies from other children that they had. But the writer of Genesis isn't concerned about those generations. He's simply trying to advance the story, trying to get the story advanced all the way down this line of Seth. He's mostly concerned with the line that leads us to Jesus through Abraham, through Moses, through David, through Jesus. And that line shoots right through here, through Seth. And that's why you don't find all the other genealogies here. Now we find something really interesting here as we read about the descendants of Adam. Here we see this guy, uh, Lamech. He's the sixth son from Adam on Cain's side. We just read about him. This is a guy who definitely displeased God. This is the guy who boasts about killing a guy who wounded him and, and I'll kill a kid who bruises me. He displeased God in chapter 4, verse 22 and 24. Now here the sixth son from Adam on Seth's side is Enoch. This man walked with God. He pleased God. Lamech displeased God. Enoch pleased God. But look how the Canaanite side, how they even copy the names of Seth. I put it up on a slide. You have Enoch from Cain's side and Enos. Irad, Jerad, Mahujael, Mahalalel. Lamech, Lamech, same name. Methushel, Methushel, Methuselah. And so what I want you to take away from that church is that Satan is the great imitator. He will try to imitate righteousness. He's the great liar. The name Satan means the great deceiver. And that's what we're dealing with all the time. It's nothing new as you run into it in your life today. So the text also goes on to say that Enoch was 65 years old when he became the father of Methuselah and that Enoch began to walk with God. Now we can say a lot about how having children makes you walk with God. <laughs> Any of you who have children, you know. Because right here it says that Enoch walked with God for 300 years after he had Methuselah. But we're not given any details about Enoch's life at all. But we know it had to be very special because just that term, walked with God, that term is only in the Bible three times. And as well, along with Elijah, Enoch is the only other person where it is not said that he died. Instead, it says that God took him. So we don't know why it says that Enoch decides to walk with God. Was it because he had Methuselah? We don't know for sure, but we know he begins to walk with God. Now, some believe that maybe God told Enoch, listen, Enoch, after the death of your son, Methuselah, I'm going to destroy the world. Look, that would make you walk with God, wouldn't it? And it's interesting to know that the year of the flood was the last year of Methuselah's life. Methuselah lived for 969 years. And so it was like a, almost a full thousand-year warning that mankind needs to repent and God's going to destroy the world. Now in verse 25, it talks about Methuselah, that Methuselah lived 187 years and became the father of Lamech. This is the good Lamech. Then Methuselah lived 782 years after he became the father of Lamech, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. Now, Methuselah is known as the longest living character in the Bible. And those of us who are getting older, we kind of joke with each other about being Methuselah. Like, hey, looking like Methuselah today. 
We, we, we can joke about that, but you know what's interesting about Methuselah? He lived almost a thousand years, but no other achievements are ascribed to Methuselah. Like the longest living man, the only thing he's really known for is being the longest living man. And so maybe a lesson, an application that we can glean here as a church is that quality of life is much more important than quantity. I've heard that expression many times. I've been a Christian all my life. Like, amen, brother, amen, sister. I I wish I could say that. But the real question is, who's noticed? Because Moses, he lived one-eighth the lifespan of Methuselah. And yet we know everything about Moses. In verse 28, talks about Lamech. Lamech lived 182 years and became the father of a son. Now he called his name Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground, which the Lord has cursed. Then Lamech lived 595 years after he became the father of Noah. And he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. Now how are we to explain the length of time that all of these men lived, hundreds and hundreds of years. Well, we don't know. But I do know this, first of all, that the ages in which they died are true. These men really lived and died according to what's written here. But we can't explain how long they lived. Science has tried. Many men have tried to come up with explanations. Maybe scientifically, some would say that Maybe the atmosphere was thicker at that time and it protected them from ultraviolet rays which kill the human cell and break them down and increase the aging process. Maybe just the bloodline was so pure or viruses and diseases weren't as powerful as they are today. Or maybe God just did it because he just needed to populate the earth. Thing is, we don't know. But I do know that the creation story wasn't written to teach science. It was written to teach wisdom. And it was written to teach us how to live according to the will of God. Now, we also know this, that the longer people live, the more time they have to commit evil and spread evil ideas. I want you to think about this for a second. Think about how often evil people slaughter good people. It's happening right now. All over the world, Christians are being slaughtered. Long-living evil people will prevail. And so by limiting the numbers of years that, that evil can live, the amount of evil is contained. God will not let evil prevail. So make, make no mistake about it, though, when Noah comes on the scene, they first looked to Noah as maybe, maybe Noah's the one, the Savior that was promised to us in Chapter 3, verse 15, the snake crusher. Maybe that's who Noah is. He, he was looked on in that way. And maybe he would be the actual snake crusher. In verse 32, as we continue, it says, Noah lived 500 years, or Noah was 500 years old, and Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Jephthah. Chapter 6, now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land. And daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. 
Nevertheless, in his days shall be 120 years. Now, I want to spend a little time right here covering this. I spent hours during the holiday vacation pondering this verse. Hours, more hours studying it. I, I just wanted to blow through this, to be honest. This, this isn't a salvation issue. This isn't even the main thrust of the lesson, but sometimes the Spirit says, dig. Right here, we, we have one of the most perplexing verses in all the Old Testament. There are a couple things going on here that I want to touch on. It's commonly argued, first off, that this phrase, sons of God, are angelic beings who fell from heaven. That's what most of us believe. It's what I strongly believe going into the study. Now, this rests upon the assumption that this phrase, sons of God, can only mean angelic beings in this context. And it is true that when you look up this phrase in other parts of the Bible, Job verse, chapter 1, verse 6, Job chapter 2, verse 1, Job 38, verse 7, that it's true that this Hebrew phrase is referring to angelic beings in other parts of the Bible, and it's the same phrase. There's no doubt about it. However, there are other related or, or cognate titles that are attributed to human beings as well or in the same way. Example, the children of Israel are called sons of Yahweh in Deuteronomy 14. It says, you are sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves nor shave your forehead for the sake of the dead. In Hosea 1 verse 10 it says, yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea which cannot be measured or numbered and in the place, and it, and in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people it will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. Now remember, since we started reading Genesis, I, we've been playing with this idea that let's get into the skin of the ancient people, these ancient people who read it, and let's think about what they understood, what they saw, what they heard, how they applied it. And they all knew, that, as we've read through this, that they understood that there was this curse that divided the seeds between Adam and Eve and Satan. Let's read it real quick. 3.15 And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. He shall crush you in the head and he shall strike you on the heel. God says he's going to put hostility between Satan and the woman, that all unity and peace would be lost. Satan and his family seed go in one direction. God and his family seed go in another direction. Remember I referred to that the Old Testament and really the whole Bible is just two seeds in conflict. Two seeds going in opposite directions. One branch, the sons of God. Adam believed this promise when he heard it. Remember, Satan curses the serpent. He curses Satan. And then he curses the ground. And in the middle of it, he talks about the seed. Adam believed the promise of the curse. He believed in the one to come by faith, the Bible says. Who did he believe in? The snake crusher. Jesus, who would through the cross crush the head of Satan and no longer would Satan have control over the children of God. We see this promise with God in Adam and Eve and today we see Jesus giving us the same promise 
But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. It is a strong argument that the sons of God aren't speaking about divine beings, but to the seed of the woman who would eventually lead to Jesus. And additionally, the daughters of Cain, or the daughters of men, would then come from the line of Cain, the seed of Satan. Remember, Cain killed Abel. And John writes in 1 John that Cain is the one who was of the devil. There we go. Was of the devil. He, he, he was of the devil. He was of the evil one. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous, an evil seed and a righteous seed. The daughters of men, the sons of God. The sons of God, Seth's line, they were attracted to the beautiful daughters of Cain's seed and took wives for themselves. Evil is now married to righteousness. And church, we see that in the church today. That's what Satan does. He, he doesn't persecute the church like he used to anymore. Instead, he'd rather just marry on into it. And we see false prophets and we see all kinds of crazy things going on in our world today. But just as Yahweh, in the beginning, separated light from dark, darkness in creation in Genesis 1, so too we are commanded to have nothing to do with evil. Righteousness and evil, dark and light, have nothing in common. And failure to do so has led to the downfall of God's people time and time again. Let me see how we're doing on time. I want to read to you. Just, just listen for time's sake. I'm going to read to you Psalm 106, and you can just reference it, verses 34 through 43. Psalm 106, verses 34 through 43. Speaking of God's people, the psalmist writes, They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord God commanded them, but they mingled with the nations and learned their practices and served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons and shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean in their practices and played the harlot in their deeds. Verse 40. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his inheritance, and he gave them into the land of the nations, and those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies also oppressed them, and they were subdued under their power. Many times he would deliver them. They, however, were rebellious in their counsel, and so sank down in their iniquity. I believe that's exactly what took place in the time of Noah. During that time, wicked led righteousness astray. Those who had once served Yahweh now joined themselves with the marriage of heaven and hell. There are other theories, of course. The one that probably most of us believe that these divine beings were fallen angels, and there's plenty of scripture to back it up. Jude 
verses 5 through 7. Just all the scriptures I mentioned in Job, that same phrase. But for me, the, all of these theories have problems, okay? But the problems associated with the other one, it's hard for me to get over. I don't have time to go into it all. But just the fact that the Bible says that angels will not be given into marriage with humans. The, just the idea that the spirit and flesh combining in a union is just hard for me. There's another modern theory that's really gaining a lot of traction today. You just watch, please don't watch it, but it's on the History Channel, Ancient Aliens. Many people believe these were aliens who came down, these divine beings. They were aliens and they impregnated a human woman. It's weird stuff. But let's go on. Come talk to me if you want, you know, if this is like, ah, Love to talk to you about it. In verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men of old, men of renown. Now, other than being giants, we cannot even be sure who the Nephilim were. And the word Nephilim means giants, not fallen angels. Now, were the Nephilim the products of divine beings and a human woman? Don't know. Were the Nephilim themselves divine beings? Or were they just giants? We don't know. <laughs> I kind of think that the Nephilim are still with us today. We just call it different. We use a different name. We call it the NBA and the NFL. Like, you ever been around these guys? They're massive. I feel like a grasshopper around them. I used to be really good friends, I still am, with Simon Fletcher. He was... Denver Bronco leading tackler, middle linebacker for the Broncos. I used to run around with him. He's older now and he's gotten smaller, but when he was in his prime and we used to kick it around, I was just a dwarf. I looked like a little child next to him. Now these men says that, we, we know this, that we read about giants right here in creation. We know that these giants are sighted when Joshua asked his guys to go spy out the land and they said oh they're huge and I feel like a grasshopper and we know that David killed the most famous of all the giants Goliath but these men of renown that it refers to were more likely renowned for being physically powerful and not really it doesn't have really anything to do with being morally great but you decide again these aren't salvation issues everyone's welcome here but Definitely things that have made me look at it over and over. In verse 5 of chapter 6, it says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and every intent of his thought, or every intent of the thoughts of his heart, was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Now, this idea of God regretting something that he had done seems to be incompatible with the sovereign God, doesn't it? Then all-knowing God. Because we know God knows everything. Well, if God knows everything, how can He regret anything? How can God even feel bad? Remember, God gives us free will, but God already knows which thing we're going to choose. He already knows it. God is outside of time. He knows the future. He's outside of time and space. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't feel bad for our choices. 
the question comes, does God really have emotions? Well, if we were made in God's image, why would we humans possess any ability that God wouldn't? And so God's heart is capable of complex combinations of emotions, infinitely more remarkable than anything I've ever experienced. So God can lament about something that he brought to be in one regard, and in the other regard, he can know that it was the best thing for us. Let me give you an analogy. Let's pretend all of us are adults and we all have a son. We all have a kid. Now, if you spank your son for some disobedient thing that he did and the kid runs away because of that spanking, you may feel remorse over the spanking. But not from the sense that you disapprove of what you did, but because the spanking was necessary and it was wise to do in that situation, but you feel sorry that he ran away. If you had to do it all over again, you would. Because it was the right thing to do, even though you knew the consequence was going to be a separation between you and your son for a season of time. You approve the spanking from one angle and regret the spanking from another angle. If my little mind can feel that, it's not hard to imagine that God, infinite mind, can do something similar. In verse 7, it says, The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from, from man to animals, to creeping things and to the birds of the sky. For I am sorry that I made them. Again, this speaks to God's immense sadness. God saw how much human beings had engaged in cruelty to one another, how widespread it had become, and God decided, look, that's it. I need to start over. God was not prepared to allow that kind of suffering. Listen, man's evil to one another was the reason God decided to destroy the world. That's what these chapters are really about. That's the main thrust of what we're talking about. But in verse 8 it says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Now it says that Noah was a righteous man, and he throws this on there, blameless in his time. Listen, that is the only age that counts in assessing the morality of people in their own time, in his time, in their age. We are to judge people in the standards of their age, of their time, not to the standards of our time or our age. When we judge people who lived before us by the moral standards of our current time, we mess it all up. Here's why. When we do this, we read about these people from old, and we end up concluding virtually everyone who lived before us was never a good person. Look, that, that's what the world thinks right now about the Old Testament and much of the New Testament. God is mean. All the people in the Old Testament were just twisted. That's what's already going on. In America, for example, 
Students are taught in school that the founding fathers were slave owners. They were. And that America was a slave country that we, we, we allowed slavery. Therefore, they're told that these people were bad people and America is a bad place. But what you don't hear in these conversations, what is not being taught, is in the time of America's founding, virtually every society in the world, including non-Western Asian, African, and Muslim societies, all practice slavery, and often in greater numbers than America ever did. As well, what you don't hear is that it was in America and the Western Bible-based Judeo-Christian civilization, it was they who abolished slavery before any other civilization did. That's how George Washington and Thomas Jefferson should be judged by the way God judged Noah in his time, not tearing down their statues. They should be judged the way God judged Noah and by the freedom-loving and the freedom-spreading society that they ultimately created. In verse 10, Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Verse 13, Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourselves an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms, and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. Now the Hebrew word for Hebrew word for ark is tavah. It's also used to describe that the basket that Moses' mother set him in when he was a baby and sent him down the river. It's the same word, same Hebrew word, ark. It's the same thing. You find that in Exodus chapter 2, verse 3. In both stories, God is the navigator of the ark. He directs it according to his will. They, they don't have rudders. She just threw it in, in the river, and God directed it to where he'd be raised by Pharaoh. Therefore, it's different than any other vessel in the Bible in that it is steered by God. Verse 15, it says, This is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. When you do the math, a cubit is about 18 inches. When you do the math, it's 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet tall. And we know that it had three levels. That would have a displacement of 43,000 tons, which is like over 500 railroad cars. There's plenty of room for all the things that needed to be placed on the ark. Verse 16, you shall make a window for the ark and finish it to a cubit from the top and set the door of the ark in the side of it. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And every living thing of all flesh 
You shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds after their kind and of animals after their kind, of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind. Two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. Now the creatures needing refuge were the land-based land-based creatures, all the water, aquatic animals, they're loving the flood. They're like, woohoo! We're expanding our territory. Verse 21, As for you, take for yourself some of all food which is edible and gather it to yourself. It shall be for food for you and for them. Thus Noah did, according to all that God had commanded him. So he did. Now Noah and his family were in the ark for about a year. And they were responsible for feeding the animals. But one thing we don't think about is they really had to be consistently kind. Kind to one another. Serving and patient and kind to the animals. And the ark, therefore, is kind of like a a training ground for this new world that they were going to one day populate, populate. That they would get this lesson, this teaching on how to act kindly to one another and to the animals and to be patient. But obviously these lessons have been lost through time. We are killing the land, to be honest. And we're killing each other. And so we go into close it and pray. But remember, there's always a ray of hope. Whenever it seems... The darkest time, God always shines rays of hope. Let's go ahead and pray. Our God in heaven, I thank you for this time. I thank you for allowing me, Father, to speak your words. So, Father, I pray that as these things stir around in our lives and our hearts, that we would be better people. Father, that we would actually examine ourselves in a very clear way. Father, that you would open us up and lay bare for nothing is hidden from you. You would expose every prejudice that we would have. You would expose every sinful thought and we would learn to deal with it in a godly way. Thank you, Father, that each person here will hear the message in a way that was meant for them. Thank you, Father, that you expand our thinking. But most of all, Father, you purify our hearts that sin is like cancer of the heart and your word is like a scalpel that cuts it out and it doesn't leave a hole. It replaces it with the goodness of your love and your son, Jesus. Thank you so much for the opportunity which you give. In Jesus, I pray, amen.